Short Rounds. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is another one of those weeks where I do short rounds instead of the full-length episodes. Now before you grab your pitchforks, I am doing two short rounds this week, and I think both of these subjects are super interesting, and I think you'll like them. So last week I talked about the British side of the American Revolutionary War, and in the course of that episode I mentioned an event that I think is really interesting. It is one of the forgotten campaigns of the war, a surprisingly important string of events and a fascinating person that operated on the fringes of what most Americans know about the conflict. We tend to forget the French assistance during the war, true, but we also forget about the Spanish. Today's protagonist is Bernardo de Galbes, the Spanish governor of Louisiana during the Revolution, and he's one of America's biggest friends that we've completely forgotten about. Galbes and his activities during the Revolution might have been critical to its outcome. He helped keep George Washington and the Continental Army supplied during their time at Valley Forge. And his expeditions against the British on the Mississippi River and his reconquest of the Florida Gulf Coast were one of the critical campaigns of the Revolution, and he might be the reason the United States looks the way it does today. I'm not underselling this. America's history owes more than it thinks to the Spanish intervention in the Revolution and their military hero, Bernardo de Galbes, the Spanish Lafayette. As always, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13, y'all. Language is clean, content is not. All my sources are on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want to fact-check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are mine. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So, let's meet my boy Bernardo. Bernardo de Galbes was born on July 23, 1746, in southern Spain. He was a member of the very important and influential Galbes family. Bernardo's uncles, Don Jose and Don Miguel, were both high-ranking ministers in the Spanish government, and his dad, Don Matias de Galbes, was Captain General of Guatemala during the Revolution and later Viceroy of New Spain, also known as Mexico. So Bernardo's family was closely involved in Spain's New World Empire throughout the late 18th century, which I guess you should probably keep in mind, this is a guy whose career was definitely boosted by nepotism. Bernardo de Galbes showed early interest in a military career, studying military science and fighting in the Seven Years' War as a very young officer. He was commissioned into the infantry and fought the Apache on the Mexican border and the Barbary pirates during an assault on Algiers in 1775. He was wounded in both these campaigns, which shows that he wasn't just some pampered rich kid living off his famous name. He was actually getting out there doing something. Even people who benefit from family connections can actually be good at their jobs. After the attack on Algiers, Galbase became a professor at a Spanish military academy before being reassigned once again. This time he received the commission that would make him a major player in the American Revolution. Galbase was sent to become the new governor of Spanish Louisiana. Real quick, I need to explain some things about where British and Spanish territory in America stood when the revolution began. In 1763, the French and Indian War 
aka the Seven Years' War, came to an end, and France and Spain were the big losers. Spain was forced to hand over Florida to Great Britain, and France had to hand over the eastern half of Louisiana, the modern USA between the Appalachians and the Mississippi, also to Great Britain. But in 1764, in exchange for Spain's help in the war, France gave them the western half of Louisiana, basically the future Louisiana Purchase, including New Orleans at the mouth of the Mississippi River. So this is how things stood when the American Revolution broke out. British-controlled Florida was bigger than the modern state of Florida and included portions of modern Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, including the major settlements of Baton Rouge and Mobile. The major settlements of British Florida were Pensacola on the Gulf Coast and St. Augustine near modern-day Jacksonville. The rest of Florida was considered an inhospitable malarial swamp, unfit for human habitation, and not much has changed in the last several hundred years. Now, Spanish Louisiana, with its capital at New Orleans, was the newest addition to the Spanish Empire, but this vast territory was still very lightly populated. Only 18,000 non-Indian inhabitants in 1777, a quarter of which lived in New Orleans. The only real settlements were New Orleans itself and the tiny village of San Luis, modern-day St. Louis, Missouri. Now, Spain was happy to have Louisiana, but were obviously not happy that Britain had taken Florida away and they wanted it back. So this short round kind of parallels with the other one, about another territory that England took from Spain and that Spain wanted back, the fortress of Gibraltar on the Spanish coast. So yeah, Spain had a bone to pick with King George III, and Bernardo de Galbes would be the man to pick it. When Bernardo de Galbes became the new governor of Spanish Louisiana, he was only 31 years old. Shoot, that's how old I am. But when he took over in New Orleans on January 1st, 1777, Galbes turned out to be an excellent governor. He was instantly popular due to his, uh, you know, friendly character, which somehow straddled the line of elite Spanish gentleman and approachable friendly magistrate. He made close personal connections with the New Orleans Creole elite. Very good connections indeed, since he married a local Creole widow, Marie Felicité de Saint-Maxent de Strand, in November 1777, which gave him immediate popularity with the Creole population, and also, by all accounts, a very wonderful, powerful, and kind woman. Apparently they were a bomb couple. They were the power couple of their day. Galbase even won over the notoriously touchy Cajuns. When the British started fighting the French in Canada during the Seven Years' War, they rounded up and expelled the French-speaking population of Acadia, what is now Nova Scotia. The Acadian immigrants drifted across the Atlantic world, many of them settling in what is now Louisiana, where the Acadians became the Cajuns. Acadians, Cajuns. They weren't exactly happy to be transferred to Spanish rule, but as you can imagine, they were even less happy with the British. Man, so many people in this time period hate the British, usually with very good reason. But Galbase also had orders from King Carlos III to keep an eye on the development of the American Revolution. Galbase had arrived in Louisiana during a critical year, 1777, when the British still appeared to be winning the war and the Americans needed all the help they could get. And a surprising amount of this help would come from New Orleans. 
Galbase used his connections to funnel as much war material as he possibly could up the Mississippi to Ohio, where it could be carried overland into Pennsylvania to the American rebels. His main contact for this was Oliver Pollock, the Continental Congress's semi-official representative in New Orleans. Galbase and Pollock worked to smuggle supplies to the colonists under the noses of the British, who still held Baton Rouge and various other points in the Mississippi. They also worked to extend Spanish funds and credit to American officers, like George Rogers Clark, the Virginia militiaman who was fighting the British in Illinois. Galbase's covert support didn't just include sending material help. American privateers could sell captured British prizes in New Orleans, much to the anger of the Royal Navy, who were like, Hey, Galbase, you're supposed to be neutral. And Galbase would say, I don't know what you're upset about. My doors are open to all British subjects, including Americans. That's why you're fighting the war, right? Because you think Americans are your subjects, so what's the problem? When a shipment of weapons arrived in New Orleans and the British complained, Galbase said, Oh, those are weapons for local militia forces. And oh no, we lost them. Where did they go? This shipment of weapons was in the hands of Oliver Pollock on its way to Pennsylvania and George Washington's army. Galbase's anti-British policy paid dividends for the American Revolution. With the British Royal Navy blocking the sea, Galbase's pipeline of support was one of the only things keeping Washington's army alive. It was King Carlos's policy to help the colonists, but Galbase's zeal and energy just was the main force pushing enormous amounts of weapons, ammunition, and especially blankets up the Mississippi to Washington's army. Washington's survival at Valley Forge owes more than a little to Bernardo de Galbase. Americans acknowledged the critical help that Galbase gave to their cause. Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry were both enthusiastic pen pals with Galbase, and they helped to persuade the Continental Congress to pass a resolution in October 1778. It said, Governor Galbase will be requested to accept the thanks of Congress for his spirited and disinterested conduct towards these states, and be assured that Congress will take every opportunity of evincing the favorable and friendly sentiments they entertain of Governor Galbase and all the faithful subjects of his Catholic Majesty. So this kind of support was all well and good, but starting in 1779, Galbase's contribution to the American Revolution was of the much more direct kind. In June 1779, Spain officially declared war on Great Britain, immediately putting Spanish Louisiana on the front lines of what was becoming a world war. Galbase only had a very small garrison of regular troops in New Orleans, but he faced serious British threats from the north, up the Mississippi, and the east from British West Florida. The British forces there were small, but they were tough, and if they worked together, they stood a good chance of capturing New Orleans. This meant the fall of Spanish Louisiana, but also the closing of the Mississippi River supply line to the American rebels. Galbase had known that this day, this day of war, would come, and he'd been planning and preparing and collecting intelligence on British plans for the last two years. He would have to move fast. British General John Campbell, yep, it's another John Campbell, another Clan Campbell guy, another member of Clan Campbell. Seriously, these guys are everywhere in British military history. Just look for the name Campbell, there's like 50 of them. Was in command at Pensacola, and he had been sent orders to prepare an attack on New Orleans. But Galbase was determined to strike first. This was Galbase's shining quality as a military leader. He knew that it was better to punch first rather than wait to get punched. 
Don't react to your enemy. Make your enemy react to you. To save New Orleans from British invasion, he didn't need to go on the defense. He needed to go on the offensive. Galbase's original plan was to sail up the Mississippi and immediately tackle the British positions at Fort Butte and at Baton Rouge. He was all set to leave, but on August 18th, a hurricane slammed into the Gulf Coast and sank most of his fleet. This would not be the first or last time that a hurricane ruined Galbase's plans. He's hanging out on the Gulf Coast. What can you expect? And many people would have postponed the attack. But Galbase made a public speech to the people of New Orleans, rallying them to fight the British. The crowd was motivated by his words and carried him to the arsenal on their shoulders as they swore that the city would sacrifice its lives in the king's service and that they would gladly do the same with all their possessions. With this promise in hand, on August 26th, Bernardo de Galbase led a ragtag army north through the Louisiana Bayou to attack the British forts. He had 520 regular Spanish soldiers, 60 white militiamen, 80 free people of color also serving as militia, both black and mixed, and Oliver Pollock leading nine other American volunteers. And on the way, they would pick up around 600 Cajun and Indian volunteers forming a remarkably diverse little army of 1,400 men at its height, speaking like 10 different languages. Galbase himself said that there were men of all conditions, nations, and colors, without an engineer or artillery officer. Galbase's army slogged through a 100 miles of mud and swamps at a pace of 9 miles a day, the heat of the Louisiana summer and the plagues of mosquitoes must have been horrible, and eventually a third of the men would succumb to malaria. This was an army with only a minority of regular soldiers and virtually no experience of military life. It was a miniature epic. But they made the journey with high spirits, attacked Fort Butte on September 7, 1779, and overwhelmed its small garrison of Hessian grenadiers with no casualties. Two weeks later, they arrived in front of Baton Rouge, a much stronger fort with 13 cannons and a garrison of 400 regular British and German troops. Galbase distracted the British with a diversion to the north, while he dug trenches and set up his cannons. The Spanish opened fire on the fort on September 21st, and after three hours of bombardment, the British surrendered. Galbase demanded and was given terms that included the surrender of the fort at Natchez, much further up the Mississippi. For the price of one killed and two wounded at Baton Rouge, though many more men would die of malaria or other diseases, Bernardo de Galbais had cleared the British army from the Mississippi River. Despite its small size and scope, this was an incredible campaign, launched on a shoestring of resources with a who's who of languages, cultures, and races. White Americans, free black Americans, Cajuns, Creoles, Spanish, Indians, and Frenchmen had made the trek to Baton Rouge. Their reward was that the British Empire was pried away from the Mississippi, the supply routes to the Continental Army remained open, and help flowed north to St. Louis and Kentucky that allowed George Rogers Clark to complete his successful campaigns in the Northwest. For such a small campaign, the capture of Baton Rouge had an enormous impact. But Galbase was already planning his next move. With the immediate threat to New Orleans eliminated, the next step was the reconquest of Florida. His first target would be the settlement of Mobile, now in Alabama, but his ultimate objective would be the much tougher fortress of Pensacola, Britain's stronghold on the Gulf Coast. 
Galbase's Gulf Coast campaign would be Spain's contribution to the war in North America. But his big obstacle would be the Spanish military leadership in Cuba. The authorities in Cuba were always concerned for the security of Havana, ever since its capture by the British during the Seven Years' War. This meant that Galbase was very slow to get resources, reinforcements, or anything from Havana unless he practically forced their hand. Galbase had orders from the King of Spain to carry out military operations against Florida, but the Cuban authorities were always waving him off and ignoring his requests for help. Galbase was always complaining about those cautious old losers up in Havana, and he had a good point because as we know, the British were barely holding things together at this point in the war. So after months of waiting for promised help that never arrived, Galbase decided to go after Mobile on his own. He would put himself out there and basically force the authorities at Havana to support him. On January 14, 1780, he set sail with what troops he had on a ragtag flotilla of scraped-together warships and transports, and the weather happened once again, with a tremendous storm that grounded many of the ships and caused havoc with the expedition. It didn't look good when Galbase's battered army washed ashore near Mobile. They were on a deserted beach and exposed to a British counterattack. Galbase later reported that, The troops found themselves ashore without arms or ammunition, naked and with nothing to eat, in a land surrounded by enemies. There they remained for twelve days without tents or food. But at the end of those twelve days, reinforcements and supplies began to arrive from Cuba. Galbase's strategy had worked, and the Cuban authorities had been forced to bail him out. Let's be real, though. If the British had chosen to attack before then, Galbase would have had no choice but to surrender. It was a big, big risk, and he was downright lucky that it had paid off. With his army now strengthened to around 1,200 men, Galbase laid siege to the defenses of Mobile. After a two-week siege, on March 13, 1780, the walls of Fort Charlotte were breached, and the garrison surrendered. Just in time, too, because General Campbell's relief column was literally hours away. But Mobile was taken, and 300 more redcoats marched into Spanish prison camps. Galbase was already planning for the final boss, Pensacola. He set up his headquarters in Havana to gather the large numbers of troops and ships that he would need for such a major operation. But the authorities at Havana were slow, and in the meantime, the British Empire was striking back. On May 25, 1780, a British and Indian expedition from Michigan tried to seize San Luis, St. Louis, from its small Spanish garrison under Galbase's lieutenant governor, Fernando de Leyba. The enormously outnumbered Spanish regulars and Missouri militia were able to stop the attack. Then the Spanish launched a counter-raid in December 1780 that penetrated all the way to Fort St. Joseph in Michigan, destroying the British outpost, which is how you get Spanish troops very briefly raising their flag in Michigan, of all places, during the American Revolutionary War. Another British counterattack tried and failed to retake Mobile in January 1781, led by the German colonel Johann von Honksleiden and consisting mostly of American loyalists and loyal Indians. The Spanish drove off the attack and killed Honksleiden, so the retreat was led by American loyalist Philip Barton Key, the uncle of Francis Scott Key, author of The Star-Spangled Banner. It's like six degrees of American Revolution up in here. Everyone is tangentially related to everyone else in some obscure way. 
But now that all that was wrapped up, it was time for Galbase to finish his string of victories with the biggest prize of all, Pensacola. He tried to set out in October 1780, but it was but his fleet was hit by what else? A hurricane and had to be called off yet again. All this gave General Campbell time to reinforce and improve Pensacola's defenses. Since our running theme today seems to be wow, what a weird bunch of folks, Campbell's Pensacola garrison consisted of regular redcoats, German mercenaries, local Indians including Choctaws and Creeks, and units of American loyalists from Pennsylvania and Maryland. This came out to around 1,300 men holding a formidable fortress. But Galbase had gained the plans to Pensacola's defenses through his intelligence efforts before the war. He sailed from Havana once again with an initial invasion force of 1,300 regular Spanish soldiers, including a regiment of the Wild Geese, the Irish Jacobite Exiles, and militia units, including black militia companies from Cuba. They arrived outside Pensacola on March 9th, 1781. The big trouble early on was that the Spanish admiral was worried about taking his ships into Pensacola Bay. After the lead ship grounded on its way in, he refused to send any more. But Galbase refused to back down from the Spanish admiral. He needed the ships inside the bay to land his forces. He commandeered a ship from New Orleans and sailed through the bay himself, proving the admiral wrong. The ship sailed in behind him and landed Galbase's army. Galbase's Spanish, Irish, and Cuban troops, including white and black soldiers, began to prepare siege works around Pensacola on March 24, 1781. It was a difficult task. Most of the army hadn't arrived yet, and the little force was under constant attack from British-allied Choctaw Indians. Galbase himself was lightly wounded on April 12th and continued to direct the siege from his tent, his arm in a sling. On April 19th, though, ships from Cuba and New Orleans arrived, carrying a large number of reinforcements and supplies, including more French and Spanish soldiers. Now with 8,000 men, Galbase pressed the siege of Pensacola. The struggle continued through storms, setbacks, constant raids, Galbase personally led the defense against counterattacks. Trenches filled with water, and men grew sick in the humid climate of the Florida wetlands. Galbase gave his troops a daily ration of brandy, because that's how you cure everything in the 18th century. The siege of Pensacola dragged on, day after day. On May 8th, one of the Spanish guns hit the powder magazine inside one of the British forts, blowing it sky high and killing almost its entire garrison. The white-coated Spanish soldiers immediately stormed and seized what was left of the redoubt. With this critical part of his defenses gone, General Campbell could no longer resist, and on May 10th, 1781, he formally surrendered Pensacola to Galbase. 1,100 British and Loyalist troops marched into captivity. Spanish had lost 74 dead and 198 wounded, but West Florida was in their hands once again, and the Gulf Coast was completely under their control. Bernardo de Galbase was triumphant. Galbase was hailed as a hero in Spain, and his accomplishment was recognized in Britain, France, and America as well. By holding open the Mississippi and capturing Mobile and Pensacola, 
Along with the operations further up the Mississippi River, Bernardo de Galvez had cleared the British from almost the entire future territory of the United States west of the Appalachians. King Carlos III promoted Galbase to field marshal, awarded him the title Count of Galbase, and gave him command of all military operations in North America. To acknowledge the fact that he had personally broken into Pensacola Bay with his ship, he was allowed to add the official motto, Yo Solo, which means I alone, to his coat of arms. That was Galbase's motto, I alone. He had been the driving force behind everything Spain had achieved in North America. Galbais continued to coordinate Spanish army operations in the Caribbean, including the capture of the Bahamas. He rightfully received much of the credit when Florida was returned to Spain in the Treaty of Paris that ended the American Revolutionary War. After the war, Galbais served as governor of Cuba from 1783 and Mexico from 1785. For the short time he spent there, Galbase is surprisingly well-remembered in Mexico to this day. But after donating much of his personal fortune to help victims of a malaria epidemic, Galbase succumbed to the disease himself on November 30th, 1786, at the age of 40. His tomb lies today next to that of his father in Mexico City. Bernardo de Galbase was one of the critical non-American figures in the history of American independence. Without his energy and initiative, supplies might not have reached George Washington at Valley Forge. Without his creativity and ability to motivate people of many different races and backgrounds, the Mississippi River Valley, including New Orleans and St. Louis, might have fallen to the British. Without his willingness to take risks and go it alone, the British might have held Florida after the war along with the Mississippi River Valley. Imagine the impact that would have had on American history. Without Galbase keeping the Mississippi open and liberating Florida, would the British have surrounded America on land during the last stage of the Revolutionary War? Or after it? Would Britain have kept these areas in the peace deal and blocked America off from westward expansion? America might have been trapped on the East Coast forever without Bernardo de Galbase. Sadly, Bernardo de Galbase's contribution to American history remains mostly forgotten. Most credit for foreign help goes to the French, not the Spanish. But some Americans did remember. There is a Galbase Street and a big statue in the business district of New Orleans. He is honored with a statue in a square in Mobile and Galbase Plaza in Baton Rouge. Finally, when a new port city was established on the Texas Gulf Coast, it carried the name of America's Spanish hero. Galbase's town, modern Galveston. In 2014, the U.S. Congress awarded Bernardo de Galbase a long-overdue honorary citizenship, one of only eight people to be so honored, and in 2019, a statue was erected in front of the Spanish Embassy in Washington, D.C. If you happen to pass by someday, it might be nice to say a brief thank you to the man who did so much to make American history possible. Give a little credit to the Spanish Lafayette. Thanks a bunch for listening today. Hope you had a good time. And if you're like me hearing all this, you're really glad they just released a malaria vaccine. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources and some additional commentary. I am always available on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod. 
or you can email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect. If you've got advice, I'd love to hear it. And if you haven't listened, don't forget the other short round I released today. Hear all about an untakeable fortress, the people who tried to take it, and the soldiers and their families who almost starved to death trying to hold it. Fire and water combine in the great siege of Gibraltar. Fire on the rock today on Unknown Soldiers.